There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. Our focus is on personal empowerment, commitment to well-being, and the motivation to achieve more than ever thought possible. I'll host leaders from the worlds of business, philanthropy, sports, entertainment, politics, and public policy on this show to talk about the ingredients for a better life for every American. I'm thrilled today to have today's guest on Next Steps Forward, graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, MIT, and the U.S. Naval War College. Our guest has not one, not two, but three master's degrees, highlighting the classic definition of an overachiever, including one of which your thesis was about hydrodynamics. Navy Top Gun, former Defense Secretary James Mattis' Chief Speechwriter and Communications Director, author, dad, spouse, great American, retired Navy Commander, Guy Snodgrass has served our country with distinction and succeeded in many ways. Many people wouldn't even dream possible. Commander Snodgrass, Commander Snodgrass excuse me, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hey, thanks, Chris. Great to be with you. Really appreciate your time. I know you've got a lot going on, a lot of moving parts. Uh, so just thankful that you could take some time to share with our listeners uh, some of your viewpoints, your leadership skills, um, and just have a, a great conversation today. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. you know, and obviously, there's so many things that we could be talking about. You know, it's difficult to know where to start given your, your great and storied background. So maybe the best place to start is, is just chronologically. Uh, you, know, you were raised in Coffeyville, Texas. Uh, you know, we're both Dallas Cowboys fans. We'll get to that later on and then see what, what Dak and team can do for us this year. But what gave you the drive to want to accomplish everything you've accomplished so far? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I think all of us, no matter what your background or your experiences are, you know, we all have this intrinsic drive to want to continue to do better, to explore your boundaries. I think the key enabler, though, beyond just having that own built-in drive, are the people that surround you in your life. And this could be, like in my case, having a great family when I was growing up, a great church family. Uh, and one of the members of the church family was a uh, engineer at General Dynamics here in Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, he was working on, a, on an airplane called the F-16 Fighting Falcon. And so he'd bring me these, you know, basically pinups of airplanes, uh, cutaway views. Uh, so this kind of appealed to not only my dream of being a fighter pilot, but also my love for engineering and computer science. So I had these all up in my room instead of cars or other stuff. You know, so it's, it's those individuals who interact with you along the way in your life who really say, look, you've got a spark, you have an interest, I'm in a position where I can help you. And they extend that helping hand, whether it's through mentorship, their time, or picking up the phone to help uh, you reach someone who can help you out. And I found that to be the, the greatest enabler for success. Uh, great start and interesting background for that. Who would have thought that uh, Sunday school would lead you to uh, being a great fighter pilot. So that's terrific. Thank you for sharing that. And maybe you can share a little bit also with uh, your background in the military. You know, what made you join the Navy specifically? Well, I think a lot of life is fate and circumstances, what you're exposed to. In my case, growing up in, in Dallas-Fort Worth, I'd been exposed. We had an Air Force base here called Carswell Air Force Base. And so to be completely transparent, there was a large period of time where I really wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. I wanted, you know, to me, that was synonymous with becoming a fighter pilot. So I had applied to 
three of the service academies. That's uh, West Point, Colorado Springs for the Air Force, and then Annapolis for the, for the Naval Academy. And as these things go, the, you, ha- you have to get a congressional nomination. So my congressman at the time had gathered all 60 applicants. There's one spot, 60 applicants. And he brought us to Lockheed Martin, which was, uh, I guess, the follow-on to General Dynamics. And we had interviews with panels of individuals who had previously served our nation, who were luminaries in the community. And they had one panel for each of those academies. And I'll never forget, you know, I think the Air Force Academy panel really didn't have a lot of interest in me. My grades were not top-notch. I had, I had been a late bloomer when it came to grades. The thing that really resonated with the team from the U.S. Naval Academy, however, was my leadership. The fact that I had been active in Boy Scouts, and not only active in Boy Scouts, I'd led uh, my entire scout troop on a high adventure camp at Philmont North in New Mexico. And then I'd also uh, earned my Eagle Scout. So, right, so you rise all the way through to the pinnacle of, of Boy Scouts in this case. And, and you could just tell from the, the Naval Academy review panel that, that I was what they were looking for. So I was incredibly honored when they gave me their uh, thumbs up and, and I received the principal nomination from my congressman to attend the Naval Academy. Congratulations. And that's interesting how you went about that. You know, at the age of 17 or 18, when you're going through that nomination process through the interview process, you mentioned how you're, you were a late bloomer in terms of grades, I think, as, as most of us are, most guys are anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, but then you talked about your leadership skills outside of the classroom. How did you mentally prepare for something? Know that it was one of 60. This is your, your representative of Congress. You know, what did you do to go in for, for game day for that? Well, a couple of things. I think this is where also I would just put a plug in for, for your listeners for perseverance. Um, you know, I didn't just send in an application and, and kind of trust that all would be well. Uh, rather, I actually put together a, a three ring binder for each of the uh, members I was seeking a nomination from. I mailed that into them. I would repeatedly, I would call maybe once every two weeks. I would offer up additional materials from the hometown newspaper maybe a change in status regarding sports or my academics. So I, I was very active with, in this case, Congressman Barton's uh, member of his staff who was in charge of, of handling these nominations. And she actually pulled me aside whenever we did our interview process and said, I just got to say, I love the fact that you were the only person who applied, who kept in that kind of routine contact, right? So I, I wouldn't say that's indicative of, of me. I would say that's simply just one of those keys to success where if you really care about something, if it really is a dream of yours, then you'll find ways to pull out all the stops to give yourself the best chance for success. So that helped lead to, to getting the nomination. And then the second part of that question is how do you best mentally prepare? And I think a lot of this is just, once again, you predict, uh, you anticipate any problems you might face. So you sit down with family members and you say, okay, I'm going in front of this review panel for a very nerve wracking interview. Would you please give me a mock interview? Would you ask me some tough questions? And and that does two things. One, it builds your comfort level. But the second thing it does, which I find to be beneficial, is sometimes people will hit you with an oddball question you had no idea was coming. But now, if you get that question in the interview, you've actually fielded it before. So now you have a much better opportunity for success. No, that's great. Thank you. You talk about perseverance. You talk to keys to success. And I think your that exact example shows you know what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And so you were just constantly prepared, constantly updating pitching yourself for lack of a better phrase. And, and that's what you're doing. You're selling yourself to these members. And so uh, that fa- fascinating process you went through. So thanks for sharing that. And for our listeners who may have uh, a spouse or a sibling going through something similar. So thank you for that. You, you talked briefly there about uh, reaching out to family members and having them help you coach you through the process, do mock questions and interviews. Let's take a little bit further, you know, past the academy into your military career. 
Can you share some of the stresses, some of the joys, um, the trials and tribulations of being a military career person uh, and having a family at home? Sure. I think you just touched on for many members of the military, men and women alike, um, one of those just ever-present pieces of friction or points of friction. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, everyone I had a pl- the pleasure of working alongside, I mean, they love their country. They're, they're, they're willingly volunteering to serve in some form or fashion, and, and you take some hardships along with it. Where that becomes challenging is when you are in a relationship where you do have children. And, you know, as I wrote in my first book, you know, it's very easy for me to pursue my dreams, but it's more difficult when I realize my wife and my children are, are being faced with cashing the checks that I'm writing. So I can pursue my dreams, but they have to be the ones who support and follow along as we move from place to place to place. So I think that that's probably for many, that's, that's going to be the biggest challenge. And we're seeing this now in the U.S. military in particular. There's a lot of deployment time, as I just previously referenced. I mean, you're moving a lot. But guess what? Whether you know, you're a male or female, I mean, spouses, military spouses are increasingly finding professional success. They want to put down some roots. They want to stay in one spot. So if they're an attorney or if they're working in, in accounting or as a teacher, that they can continue to build their network. And so it's very challenging when you ask them once again to uh, uproot every year and a half to maybe two and a half years to follow you to your next duty station. And I thought that was probably the biggest trade that you have to make when balancing your career with your family. And what was it like for your children? I know you've got three of them mm-hmm. you know, going from different schools um, at various stages of life and ages can be challenging and difficult. You know, it's always hard to, to make new friends in different places, especially at younger ages. You know, what are some of the, the tips, you, I guess you could say, to our listeners in terms of how you helped your children go through those next steps? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, the number one thing, you have to be an active participant, of course, in their lives. You have to be involved with their interests. You have to really, I mean, more so than you would think, as I would say, even a normal parent, you have to willingly commit to bending over backwards, making sure that they understand just how deeply you care about them and their interests. You want to engage in those conversations because you're right. Uh, I think when children are younger, they're always resilient. But when they're really young, they handle the moves easier because frankly, there's a lack of awareness of what's going on around them. But once you hit probably around 9, 10, 11 years of age. That's where I noticed with my first son that uh, as we move, we moved from Japan to Norfolk, Virginia in the uh, winter of 2015, and then, excuse me, 2016. And then shortly thereafter, I mean, we're talking four months later, I went to go work for Secretary Mattis. So I was gone physically from the family for three months. And then they moved to follow me to Washington, D.C. six months after that. So here you have a kid who was uprooted from Japan, moved halfway around the world, finally gets planted in a new school, makes new friends. And then six months later, they're getting uprooted again. And that's the first time I saw him really withdraw into inside of himself. He kind of shut down, was less emotionally available, wasn't making friends at his new school as easy. Uh, and so again, I think that there's just the reality that whether they hide it well or whether they show it, that is always going on behind the scenes. So what are you doing on a daily basis to engage with them and to help them uh, feel more comfortable with their current surroundings? Thank you for sharing that. Great, uh, great insight for, for a lot of folks and for a lot of different scenarios in life. Now let's go talk about your, your military career. You know, what did it take to become a Navy aviator? You know, something you've been dreaming about since you met the engineer in, in church. Um, you get to the academy, you know, it's the best of the best, the brightest of the brightest. You know, how do you, how do you move forward with that? Sure. So I think just from a, from a, ground perspective. I mean, everybody who's going to be an aviator these days, by and large, 
you got to have a, a four-year degree. So whether it's like I, I pursued a four-year degree through the U.S. Naval Academy, uh, of course, you've got ROTC, the Reserve Officer Training Corps that many colleges have. So that's another direct pathway to the U.S. military. Uh, you can also go to college, get whatever degree you want, and then apply for any of the branches of service uh, for, through what's called OCS, Officer Candidate School. And so uh, that's a much quicker program to become an officer in the U.S. military. But that's, that's your initial steps. That's your on-ramp to joining the military. And then that puts you in a position to where you can apply to be a pilot. And so in my case, uh, had applied to be a pilot from the U.S. Naval Academy, uh, was received one of the, the coveted slots to pursue that, that pathway. And then you start going through just levels and levels of training. You start off with very basic training in Pensacola, Florida, if you're part of the U.S. Navy, where you learn about the basics of aeronautical topics, uh, meteorology, uh, navigation, how do you fly a plane just from a basic academic sense. Once you graduate from that, you proceed on to what's called primary flight training. And so in my case, I actually did that with the U.S. Air Force in uh, near Oklahoma City. There's an uh, Air Force base called Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Oklahoma. And so that's why I flew my very first powered aircraft in the U.S. military. So that's your first stop. And then depending on how you perform and also depending on your preferences, you can select to, to continue on and fly a helicopter. You can fly a propeller-driven aircraft, or you can fly, and in my mind, the best place to go is, of course, jet engine aircraft. And so that was the next stop. So I went to Meridian, Mississippi. You spend about another year to a year and a half learning to fly jet-powered aircraft. And then once again, they have another process of determining what plane you'll fly specifically. And in my case, I was really honored to be selected to fly the FA-18, a plane known as the Hornet. And that's what sent me to Lemoore, California for even more training, about another nine months of training. So all told, you're looking at somewhere between typically two to two and a half years of training for becoming a fighter pilot. Wow. That's a long time. Yeah, sure is. And you mentioned earlier in the show, again, you know, your interest in, in flying at the early age. Was there anything else you ever considered doing in the Navy? Like you said earlier, you weren't thinking about flying, going to the Navy, especially being in what I'll call landlocked Dallas, Fort Worth area. Sure. Um, was, were there any other paths you're looking at in the Navy or was it purely, I'm going to be a pilot and that's it? You know, my dream is always to be a pilot, but I'll be honest. Yeah. At the, at the Naval Academy, I thought about pursuing maybe a pathway towards becoming a Navy SEAL. I thought that sounded uh, very, very interesting to me as a college student. Uh, likewise, I'd also toyed with the idea of becoming a, a Marine Corps pilot and possibly fly an FA-18. So the, so the Naval Academy typically handles both the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps since they're part of the same department of the Navy. Um, so those were pathways I looked at. And in fact, I found out uh, fairly early in my senior year of college that I was not qualified for becoming a naval aviator. I had a heart condition. Hmm. And so come to find out, they said that's, that's blanket disqualification. That forced me to look elsewhere for another job. And I'll never forget, we talked at the very beginning of your program about the difference other people can make in your lives, especially when they take just a moment to invest in you, to invest their time. And that's what happened here. Uh, I'm dejected. I go to the on-base hospital for my final checkup. And when I find out that I'm, I'm rejected from being a naval aviator, I'll never forget uh, the gal who was the receptionist at the, at the hospital said, why would you ever give up on your dreams? Let me pick up the phone. I'm going to make a consult for you with a cardiologist at Walter Reed Military Hospital in Washington, D.C. So I went to that consult. The, the doctor kind of gave me, with a little bit of a sneer, said, look, I'm not going to waste my time on a guy who just simply wants an elective surgery to be a pilot, get out of here. So I go back and she says, nope, we're not taking no for an answer. She picks up the phone, calls Bethesda now, the Navy hospital in Washington, D.C. And I go in and I basically see a uh, 
you know, a young officer who looks like Doogie Hauser. Uh, <laughs> incredibly young. He's a cardiologist. I see him on a Friday and he says, oh yeah, this is easy. We can fix you up. Can you come in Monday? We'll do the surgery. So I, I said yes. And no kidding. The next week I have uh, heart surgery and that fixes the problem. And now I am qualified to be an able aviator. So without wow. her intervention and her willingness to step forward and, and say, don't ever quit on your dreams, I'd be doing something drastically different at this point. That is an incredible story. Uh, thank you for sharing that with us. And you mentioned earlier, again, perseverance. And you know, hats off to you. Hats off to that consult. Uh, tremendous, tremendous life story there. So thank you for that. Sure. You know, we talked about what it's like to train to be, uh, become an aviator. You know, before we get to Top Gun uh, and what it's like to get there and to, to teach there and to train there, you flew in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Was that before or after you were a Top Gun? That was actually before I was a Top Gun pilot. I was a junior officer for a fighter squadron based out of Virginia Beach, Virginia. There's a naval base there called Oceana Air Station. And so, uh, you know, you take about eight squadrons, you put them on an aircraft carrier. We sailed around the world to the Middle East, and I conducted flight operations during my very first tour of duty. Okay. Thank you for that. And, you know, as somebody who's, you know, I fly on planes for a living, not as a, as a combat pilot, um, and get the drink service when they used to have that pre-COVID-19. <laughs> you know, what's it like to fly in combat, you know, physically, mentally? You know, we all play video games as kids, but that's not a video game anymore. No, it's not. I mean, there's always some uh, built-in stressors because one, you realize you're, frankly, you're dealing with life and death. Uh, I have dropped bombs. I have fired my Gatling gun, you know, as they would say, in anger in defense of my country. And so it's, it's not something I think anybody ever takes lightly. It's, it's, so there's a little bit of a, you have to get it right. And you know that. And not only do you have to get it right because you're accomplishing a mission on behalf of America, you have to get it right because you're operating in close proximity to friendly forces. You have members of the Army, the Marine Corps, the Navy SEAL community, they're on the ground. And sometimes, in some cases, what we call close contact with the enemy. And so you have to be very precise with how you conduct yourself during the mission. So there's that aspect of it. But there's also, as you mentioned, there's the uh, kind of emotional aspect or, or I guess mental aspect, because these are long missions. We would take off from an aircraft carrier that was in the Gulf. You would fly through Kuwait into Iraq. You would refuel from, a, from an airborne tanker. And then you would basically be on a mission for maybe an hour and a half, two hours. And then you go back and hit, you know, do the tanker again and then go back for another hour and a half, two hours. And then you hit the tanker a third time before you go back to the carrier. So by the time you're done with this mission, it could be anywhere from four and a half to six and a half hours. Uh, and you're, you're on your A game that entire time. And so you find yourself fairly emotionally drained uh, by the time you get back on deck and you land on board the aircraft carrier. That's a long day. It long, sure is. Long, stressful day. You know, so let's talk more about uh, Top Gun School. You know, fighter pilots and aviators are the best of the very best. And as we know, Top Gun aviators are the best of the best of the best. You know, the selection process, the requirements, the expectations have to be, you know, pardon the pun, but sky high. You know, what does it take to not only make it to the Top Gun School, but also to make it through the program? Well, a lot of the things we've talked about are what help propel people forward. You know, when you meet adversity, when you meet a challenge, and you know, that's kind of your first moment of contact when you when you face that challenge and you decide either it's worth it for you and you're gonna press, you're gonna push through, you're gonna do whatever it takes to succeed, or you're going to kind of fold up your tent and go home right away. So I think number one, uh, the men and women who apply to go through Top Gun as a student want that challenge. They want to be the very best they can possibly be as a as a fighter pilot, as a weapons systems officer, the backseater, 
uh, kind of like Goose in the movie Top Gun, yeah. right? So, I mean, these are men and women who want to push themselves to be the very best and to achieve their fullest potential. So I think that's a key ingredient on the front side. The other element too, is that you have these instructors who work at Top Gun who are at the top of their game. They inspire confidence. They also, just by the way that they behave, make you want to follow in their footsteps. And so as Top Gun instructors, we always said we're looking for three core attributes from men and women applying. We wanted to look for talent, passion, and personality. Talent because of the fact that you have to be credible in the aircraft. You have to be able to be at least average, if not preferably above average uh, as, a, as a fighter pilot. You also had to have passion, meaning you were willing to put in the extra hours, put in the extra effort to be at the top of your game. And then the personality aspect really was one of the, the, the key of the three, because if you're a jerk, no one's going to want to listen to you. You're going to be an ineffective instructor. So you always want to find people who are not only talented, not only passionate, but that were easy to relate with, easy to work with. They could, they could be good teachers. At the end of the day, that's where your credibility is based from. And that's going to be what makes you effective, not only as a top gun instructor, but when you return to the fleet and you're helping others uh, achieve their fullest potential. Thanks for sharing that in terms of, you know, what it takes to become a Top Gun pilot, uh, become a Top Gun instructor. Maybe you can take us down the road in terms of how did you progress into to running the actual Top Gun school itself? I'm sorry, uh, how did I- pro Progress into actually becoming, you know, to running the Top Gun program. Oh, I see. Um, so, you know, the program itself is, is fascinating because it's one of the only places in the U.S. military where the junior officers and the junior enlisted are in charge. The military, like a lot of organizations, are, is very strongly hierarchical, right? If you go to a most normal company, the CEO runs the company, and then they work with COOs or the vice president or others, managers to help conduct the day-to-day -day basis. Well, when you get to Top Gun, it's not the commanding officer who's really in charge. It's the senior junior officers. And so that's the way you progress in seniority at Top Gun. When you first join, you're what's called a junior bro. And that's a, that's a gender agnostic term. But basically, if you're on the Top Gun staff, you're considered a bro. And so you, um, you start off, you're, you're studying a lot, you're working on your basic flight skills, you're, you're continuing to, to gain confidence and experience. And then once you hit about the year and a half, maybe two year mark, that's when you are one of the 10 most senior individuals based on time at Top Gun. So you've kind of matured as people have left and you've increased with your tenure on the staff. Now you're part of what's called the standardization board. We call it the stand board for short. And that's the 10 most senior instructors at Top Gun. And you're the ones who actually set the rules, the regulations. You're determining as a very small cadre of individuals what the entire United States Navy and Marine Corps do for their, for their operations. And we're talking about not just flying fighter jets, we're talking about all types of aviation, we're talking about working with ground units, surface ships, et cetera. So there's a very large, tremendous responsibility for a very small number of, of junior individuals. No pressure there whatsoever. Yeah. So, you know, what can you teach people who are already the top of the 1% of what they do, you know, especially in a split second, life or death profession, you know, as rigorous as fighter pilot jets? Well, you know, I think whether you're, regardless of what career field you're in, um, if you're at the top of your game, the one thing that most of those individuals I found ascribe to is this concept of like lifelong learning. The fact that you're never too senior, too old, too mature, whatever it may be, to stop learning, right? So that's where, uh, you know, I found a lot of my passion, both in uniform uh, as an author, but then certainly once I retired from the U.S. military, uh, was to write books, to pass on those experiences to others. 
knowing that a lot of people are, they want to achieve their fullest potential. And one of the best ways to do that is by reading others. So, you know, if you're talking about Top Gun specifically, we actually had, uh, uh, it was like our Bible. It was called the Top Gun Manual. It was four giant binders of chapters. And you, your job was to not only read through them and know them as a student, uh, but as an instructor, you were responsible for what's called a subject matter area. And so you had to revise that chapter or write a new chapter to replace it. So in my, in my mind, a lot of the leaders I've, I've watched or I've been lucky to be mentored by, you just find this, this hunger, this thirst for knowledge, this desire to always, you know, as I write in my own book, uh, Top Gun's Top 10, I say, you know, part of what makes you successful is to make today better than yesterday and then do the same thing tomorrow. So it's just this continual pursuit for achieving your fullest potential. So everything really becomes a teachable moment in that sense. Sure does. Terrific. So we're going to talk more about your Top Gun experiences later. Uh, and we're going to talk about your upcoming book, Top Gun's Top 10 Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit, which is being released in just a few weeks. But we need to talk about a couple of books first. Sure. And actually, our listeners can uh, see where to pre-order your book on our, our page uh, site. So I've, I've got that out there for you, Commander. Thanks, Chris. Most people would consider a career in the cockpit of a fighter jet to be more success than they can ever imagine. But you didn't just stop there. You became the chief speechwriter and communications director for the defense secretary, James Mattis. How'd you put yourself in the position for that, you know, such a prestigious role as that? You know, it's fun when you and I had talked uh, in preparation for this conversation, you know, one of the things I'd shared with you was uh, I love good sayings. And one of the sayings I really loved was, came from Jackie Robinson, the famous, famous baseball player who said that uh, in a lot of cases, what people consider to be luck is actually when preparation meets opportunity. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, in that uh, sometimes you look at famous movie stars, you look at people who've accomplished something and you say, my gosh, that person got so lucky. And what you don't realize is that there was a lot of effort, a lot of hard work that was going on behind the scenes. It was just transparent to you. And I'd say that that, uh, you know, is your, what you have to put into it. And then once again, you have people who are your mentors, who uh, understand you, they know your quality and they want to, they want to help push you forward in your career. And that's exactly what happened with me. All my opportunity to work with Secretary Mattis was underpinned because I had gone. So my very first tour of duty in Japan, I was stationed there for about three and a half years. I had a role called uh, training officer. And then I also had another role called a department head, which is basically fancy for middle management in an organization. And I'm flying missions. At the conclusion of that job, I went to Newport, Rhode Island. I, I had a chance to get my third master's degree in national security. And that was at the US Naval War College. Well, I did well and performed well. I, I won some writing awards. And the president of the college pulled me aside and said, look, the chief of naval operations, this is the most senior individual in the US Navy. He needs a new speechwriter. He only has one. The one he has now is leaving. He needs someone new. Would you be willing to be considered? And of course, uh, a lot of times, if it's, if it's a really unique opportunity and you've got people who believe in you suggesting you should, should try for it, well, you at least should consider it. So I said, yes, I'd be honored. Uh, I interviewed with the chief of naval operations. That went well. And I ultimately got the job. Well, everything I learned during that tenure paid off dividends because afterwards I went back to Japan for a second time. I was the commanding officer for a fighter squadron. At the conclusion of that, when I returned to the United States, we had just talked about the fact I was in Norfolk, Virginia in a leadership role there. And my phone rings and it's, and it's a three-star admiral saying that Secretary Mattis had been in the, in the job for just about a month or so. He needed a chief speechwriter. He needed someone who could run his communications department. Would I be willing to be considered? And of course, when your country asks you to contribute in such a fashion, I think the right answer typically is yes. And so I said yes. And it was because I'd had that previous experience that I was even qualified to work for Secretary Mattis. I would never have recommended it to someone who had never had a background in 
strategic communications or, or didn't had been a speechwriter prior because Mattis is so busy that you wouldn't have had a hard time catching up on the job, but, but because I had that previous experience. And so that's what's fun about life sometimes is that you never realize when you make a decision, all the untold doors that it's really opening for you. Um, someone gives you an opportunity, you're willing to take it, you have the courage to take it or the tenacity to take it. Uh, you make the most of that situation, you impress the people around you, and you'll find that over time, those, those opportunities will open even more doors for you. So that's, I guess, a pitch, if you will, for always doing your best at whatever job you're given. Thank you for that. That is absolutely fascinating. Ladies and gentlemen, you're with Commander Guy Snodgrass. This is Chris Meek with Next Steps Forward. We'll be right back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. 
Welcome back, listeners. This is Next Steps Forward, and I'm your host, Chris Meek. We're here with today's guest, Commander Guy Snodgrass, former uh, Navy Top Gun pilot. So thanks again for being here today, Commander. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Chris. Before we went to the break, you know, you were talking about uh, transitioning into becoming the Chief Speechwriter and Communications Director for Defense Secretary Mattis. What were some of the most rewarding aspects of that job? I think the number one thing you can gain from a job like that is perspective. Obviously, much like my experience with Top Gun, you're surrounded by people at the top of their game. Uh, When you're a cabinet-level secretary, when you're the Secretary of Defense, you have your pick of the litter, who you're going to bring onto your team, right? So he's not just uh, out there with his 10 cup hoping someone will come work for him. Plus, it was Mattis, uh, great reputation, known as a warrior scholar, and that helped draw people to our tent. So that, I think, is first and foremost, uh, when you're there, you're not only working with Secretary Mattis, so that alone elevates your perspective. You take someone like myself who, up to that point, I'd, I'd helped with an individual run the U.S. Navy. Uh, so I had that experience and exposure for one service. Now you're looking across the entirety of the U.S. military, and not just the military, but also the intelligence branches and intelligence uh, service agencies, et cetera. So it was just this very expansive portfolio. You're traveling the world. And there are a lot of aspects in life where your experience, what you've been exposed to, makes a big difference. Uh, it's what helps inform your own personal decision-making. But when you're placed in positions of greater authority as a senior leader, that helps inform what you use to make good decisions on behalf of your organization or your country. Before we get into your first book, well, actually, I guess we will get into it now. Chapter one is titled Service Before Self. You've done that your entire life, your entire career, Service Before Self. What's in you? What makes you tick in terms of your thought process, your mental thinking in terms of I'm here to help and to serve others, not, not myself. Well, look, I mean, I've, I've always been a little gun shy uh, because of my upbringing that, you, you know, you don't talk a lot about yourself. I love talking about experiences and mentors. Um, so I think that's where I would put it, right, is, is it's the, a lot of times people develop it at various stages of their life. I would say I was very lucky because of my church family, because of my community, because of my school. I had teachers who believed in me. But the common thread that seemed to, to underpin a lot of what they believed in was what you just mentioned, service before self. The fact that it is an honorable pursuit in one's life to put the country before your own needs, to put other people before your own needs. And I think that there is a little bit of a uh, social compact, if you will, a social agreement that that's what makes our, you know, as Americans, that's what makes America so wonderful is when you have that kind of mindset, because uh, ultimately people do put service before self, you find that you're taken well care of. It's just that you're not focused on yourself. You're focused on others and that pays dividends. So um, that's probably where I, I received it from my parents, from my church, et cetera. Um, but then you find that as you mature as a leader, that it also helps to, to attract amazing talent to your tent because they want to work for a leader like that, a leader who makes it very obvious that they care about developing you uh, mentally, morally, physically. They want to help you achieve your fullest potential and, and people want to rise to that challenge. Now, really, let's do a deep dive into your first book titled Holding the Line Inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis. You know, a lot of noise, a lot of chatter, obviously, early on in the the Trump administration, early days in terms of what was going on. Uh, The president surrounded himself with a lot of generals and admirals for his his inner circle. You know, there was certainly a lot of palace intrigue between between the president and the White House staff and Secretary Mattis, who, like you, was a career military officer. You know, after your time with him, you wrote this first book. You know, which was published last year, Holding the Line was described as the first book written by an insider with firsthand knowledge of key decisions and moments in history 
and a must-read for those who care about the presidency and America's national security. Can you give our listeners a synopsis of the book and, and share why you felt it was such an important story to tell and put it on the record? Yeah, you bet. And I'll start with that second part first, which is why did I feel it was important to share that experience with others? Uh, it's because I myself, you know, when I think about growing up as a high school student in college, in my early formative years as a U.S. military officer, um, I gained the most by reading, by reading widely, by reading a lot of books about experiences that I knew I was very unlikely to ever have myself. But I always knew if I was placed in those types of situations, you want to be prepared, you want to be ready. And there's no excuse if you're placed in a position of, of significant authority to be ignorant. So the best way to do that is by reading and you read works of others. So I remember you know, reading everything from, uh, there's a great book about Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State, former National Security Advisor under Nixon and Johnson, uh, written by Walter Isaacson. Uh, I remember reading Peggy Noonan's autobiography about her time with President Reagan. And so, you know, these, these are men and women who are having these amazing experiences in their career, and they put pen to paper, and they share that with you. And when you read those experiences, it gives you insight into everything from palace intrigue, to what it, what it takes to be successful in those types of jobs. How do you find it, a position in those types of roles? Uh, and I wanted to do my own part to contribute, right? So you put service before self. You say this was a great experience that had tremendous highs and some, and some terrific lows as well, where it was challenging periods of time, stressful. But you want to capture all that because you know that there's men and women who are following in your footsteps. And you want to leave those breadcrumbs behind for them so that they can learn and, and maximize their potential moving forward. I mentioned books, plural, and palace intrigue, which you just mentioned as well. That's because it seems in the political world, you know, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but maybe in the military too, some people always have their knives out for someone. It seems like someone had their knives sharpened for you when some media sources claimed you wrote the anonymously authored book, A Warning, which was critical of President Trump. You were put in a very difficult position where you had to go on national TV to deny that you'd done that. What's it like to be thrust into such a controversial scenario on the national stage under intense scrutiny? Yeah, I, I don't think the intense scrutiny bothered me as much as just the response to that reporting. Uh, what you're referring to is a moment in time, as you, as you said, there was a book called A Warning that was produced, um, and it broke around the same time. And, and more importantly, there was, a, I guess, a scholar at a university or some such who had said that he'd done a textual kind of a line by line comparison and found that my writing style in holding the line uh, was a very close match for a warning. And so therefore he postulated that I was the author, the unnamed author who had, who had written that book. And not only that, but I guess he had correctly guessed another kind of palace intrigue book, you know, decades prior uh, about, I think it was primary colors for president Clinton. So I guess he had a track record of success and he pointed the finger at me saying I was an individual. As you mentioned, uh, the, the challenge was I went on, I was already planned to be on Fox News to talk about national security and foreign affairs. And they gave me fair warning they were gonna ask, but I thought it'd be very easy. You just dismiss it out of hand and you just keep on moving forward. And, and unfortunately it kind of created a little bit of a firestorm. So it wasn't the fact that it was just political or that you're being asked questions. That doesn't bother me at all. I used to fly high performance fighter jets and land on the deck of a moving aircraft carrier in, in a thunderstorm at night. So that, you know, I've, I've seen stressful situations. What did bother me was when, when a news outlet covers something like that, that in this case was seen as being uh, you know, a negative light or casting a negative light on President Trump, a lot of his followers started uh, sending, you know, of course, unsolicited either hate mail or threats towards me and my family. And that's where you realize that uh, things get real pretty quick. And, and again, you know, when you care about your family, you want to make sure 
you're not putting them in extremists. And one of the best ways to do that was just to, rather than kind of dismiss it out of hand, was to just issue a very straightforward, you know, refute the story and say, no, this isn't me. You're looking in the wrong spot. Talk about the stress on you personally, on your family, in terms of the, the threats that they received. Did this episode change anything in you and who and what you are? Did it cause you to question anything? Or is it more of uh, an opportunity to reinforce who and what you are and what you believe in? I think, it, well, I think it does both. I think the, the part that it made me question was uh, it, it highlighted, it expressed, or it, it strengthened my concern about where we are right now as a nation. And, and I don't mean politics. I mean more the very intense political divisions, the fact that uh, if you ascribe, ascribe as a very strong conservative Republican, then those are the only views you can hold and you will never talk across the aisle or, or be willing to acknowledge what a very liberal Democrat might be thinking. And, and when I've had the experience in the past to talk with, for example, uh, Tom Daschle, who'd been the former Senate Majority Leader, other, both Democratic and Republican leaders, you know, the thing that they had mentioned consistently was just the ability that behind the scenes, when you get away from the cameras uh, and, the, and the political posturing, you can work together as a team. And that has kind of d- dissolved in the current environment. And so regardless of how we got here, I think there's an element of, I was simply surprised that there really are a lot of people who are agitated right now, and they're willing to express that in frustration against uh, an individual, against their family, et cetera. So, you know, that, that's a little alarming. I would say, though, that in the aggregate, what it did is it certainly strengthened the resolve, right? I mean, there's a great saying that you can't control the outcome, but you can't control your output. So I can't necessarily control what's going to happen around the world on a daily basis, but I can certainly control what I contribute positively towards uh, my community, towards America, towards others that I'm interacting with. Let's think of that political topic a little bit more and go further down that path. You know, a lot of us have experienced office politics, career politics, You've dealt with them on, on the biggest stage that's out there. Do you think career politics is inevitable and will always be a constant? Or do you think there are ways to eliminate its influence? I think there's ways to minimize. Look, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, high pressure, top jobs, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's a human endeavor. Uh, we're all people pursuing these opportunities and wanting to do the very best we can for your organization. But because it's a human endeavor, you're always going to be uh, there's, there's going to be office politics. I don't think you can ever truly eliminate it. I think that'd be, uh, unless you develop you know, a pill or something that just takes away everyone's desire for that kind of stuff. Uh, I do think though that you can minimize it. And again, that's why I'm so passionate about good leadership. I remember being a squadron commander and early on in my tenure with the squadron, you could see some of that political maneuvering where your department heads or your junior officers or even your senior enlisted would try to curry favor. They would, uh, you know, hey, you know, as a commanding officer in the Navy, you're called skipper traditionally. So it'd be like, hey, skipper, look what I brought you. I did something for you, you know? And so people are always seeking for that, that leg up. How can they be the most supportive, et cetera? Uh, and I found that when you make it very clear through your actions, not just your words, that you're going to treat everybody equally, uh, regardless of their background, their experiences, their ideas, you know, everyone's got a seat at the table. Um, every dissenting opinion is what you want to hear. You, people pick up on that signal pretty quickly. And so they'll start, they'll move away from the politics and they'll focus more on the fundamentals of their job and being successful at their job, which ultimately when, when you, the people you lead do amazing work in their own job, that propels the organization as a whole forward. You know, maybe one last question regarding the career politics. You touched on a few things there, but what do you think is the, the smartest or the most effective way to deal with officer career politics? Well, I think as a leader, 
you know, one of the things you do is you, through your words and your actions, you define what you're going to, what you're willing to stand for and what you won't stand for. And so I think that that's where it's incumbent upon the leader to make it very clear what your focus is, what you're, uh, what you're pursuing as an organization and how you expect everyone to work together within the organization to achieve those ideals. Look, I mean, we've all read about, I mean, Lincoln was famous for having his team of rivals, uh, made it pretty clear. He liked that kind of uh, tension. He liked people going head to head so that he could listen to the arguments and debates and arrive at what he felt was the best decision. And that worked well. Uh, other leaders will say that they, they want people to work together in a more collaborative fashion to arrive at the best results. So I think there are different approaches you can take, but as the leader, you can never lose sight. You have to be very mindful of the fact that the way you conduct yourself, the signals you send are always being watched by those you lead. And they're going to, they're going to mimic your actions, not your words. All right. I guess we've had enough about politics. Let's move on to the fun stuff. Let's talk about your second book, Top Gun's Top 10 Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. As mentioned previously, that's going to be released in just a couple of weeks on September 15th. Maybe you can share a little bit with our listeners, you know, a few of the takeaways that you learned in terms of decision-making and leadership as a Top Gun that we should know about. Sure. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, this was absolutely a passion project. I knew that there was a little bit of a timeliness factor to sharing my experiences with Secretary Mattis and especially to inform people who are following my footsteps. This is one of those books, Top Gun's Top 10, that I knew I'd wanted to write for probably about 15 years. Uh, leadership books made a big impact in my life. I could just, I was a voracious reader. I, I would go after anything I could find. So now the chance to turn back around and now offer up my lessons that I've learned, especially from, from such a place like Top Gun, seemed like a great opportunity to help inspire others. And, and so, you know, when you think about the people you're surrounded by, you know, I start off talking about uh, even just getting into Top Gun. The fact that whenever I competed for a slot, I tell the story about how I, I was doing a dogfight against one of the more senior Top Gun instructors. And I got defeated every single one of the three, you know, dogfighting sets that we conducted. And I thought, man, I am toast. This guy's never going to recommend me. But he, he blew my mind in the debrief when he said, look, you came in, you, you're talented. You're obviously very passionate about this. Uh, you've got a great personality. So I th I'm going to recommend you to be a Top Gun instructor. And I found myself going, my gosh, how in the, how in the world is this possible? Because you beat me. And he's like, look, you can always get better at your job. You know, that's our job is to, is to make you the best fighter pilot you can be. But you've got the requisite skill sets, all the constituent elements you need to succeed. Uh, and he's like, look, I mean, you just, that's, that's how we operate. So, you know, you learn a lesson from that and I then turn it around and then share that with a, a wider audience, right? About the fact you could be a Starbucks barista, you could be a college or a high school student, you could be a CEO, right? I mean, there's always something you can learn from these lessons. So whether it's everything from uh, one of the lessons is nothing worthwhile is ever easy. Another lesson is, you know, don't wait to make a friend until you need one. Always have a wingman. I mean, there's, there's 10 of these wonderful lessons that I, I was really lucky to to have when I was a Top Gun instructor and a fighter pilot, and then having that chance to now turn them around, share them with others was, was fantastic. Well, it's like you're reading my notes right now. You, you shared <laughs> your transcript with me before. And <laughs> one of my uh, favorite chapters here is chapter two, nothing worthwhile is ever easy. Uh, you know, coming from a, I'll say similar background in terms of really fighting and working for everything that you, you've gotten to at this point, you know, that really resonated with me. And I think well, for a lot of our listeners, especially focusing on the, the next steps forward, can you give our listeners some insight into your thought in terms of, you know, that leadership statement? Yeah, you bet. I mean, when, when you think about what it takes to be a top gun instructor, you have to get accepted. But once you're on the team, there's another six to eight months of training and preparation. And specifically, there's a really unique experience at Top Gun. It's, it's, you have to pass what's called your murder board. 
And that's just a fancy and somewhat scary term for meaning you have to memorize an entire lecture and then you have to deliver it verbatim to the staff. And I remember thinking that this was never going to happen for me. Uh, I joined the staff. I was assigned to a subject matter area called air-to-air mission planning. So now someone's saying that in six months' time, I was going to be the subject matter expert for air-to-air fighting for the entire U.S. Navy Marine Corps. Not only that, you have to give this, it's a four-hour-long lecture, 240 slides, and you have to memorize them verbatim. You can't reference your slides, your notes, or anything as you give the the speech or the, the, the lecture. And I remember thinking, there's no way this is possible. But then as the instructors help you, as they teach you the techniques of how you break down a massive amount of information into something that uh, you can remember, you build this up and you're practicing time after time. And, and these instructors, I remember thinking the very first time I had what's called a pre-board, that's where they're, you're giving your full lecture, like you're going to give it for real. And they're giving you constructive feedback. It was, a, it was a rough lecture. I did not perform very well. And these instructors were taking just page after page after page of notes, very specific, very somewhat cutting notes, you know, slide 36, you stuttered twice, sounded terrible. And, and I remember reading these notes after I'd given the lecture, just kind of feeling like I'm never going to get there. And, and that's when one of the top gun instructors had pulled me aside and said, Hey, remember in life, nothing worthwhile is ever easy, right? There's, this is a very arduous process. We're giving you all this information to not to, not to beat you down, but to make you the very best you could possibly be. You only do that when iron sharpens iron, when people around you hold you to a very high standard. And he was right. Over the course of around six months, uh, I mastered the material, ultimately gave my, passed my murder board, passed it with flying colors, and, uh, and I was a full up Top Gun instructor. And who do you feel the book's audience is and, and what do you hope readers will take away from the book? Yeah, I really had three audiences in mind. Um, I knew that you know, per- perhaps the toughest critics would be those currently serving in uniform or, or other fighter pilots. So I wanted to make sure that it was accurate and effective there. And so I had several other Top Gun instructors who were willing to take a look at early reads of the manuscript. So I feel like if you're in uniform in the military, this will easily resonate with you. Um, I've, as you mentioned, had a chance to work alongside Secretary Mattis, Admiral Greenert, who was the Chief of Naval Operations and others throughout my tenure in the military. So I've worked with some very high senior four-star Marine and, and Admiral leaders, as well as Secretary of Defense. Um, so one, you can come because you want to know what that perspective was like, what are the skill sets that it takes to succeed. But I wanted something just as equally that I could hand to my 13-year-old son and say, look, I learned these through painful experience. I learned these the hard way. Um, you can read this book. You can get, glean these lessons and, and, and better understand the importance of them without having to experience any of that failure yourself. And I think that's, once again, just as a nonstop pitch for people to read or to uh, step outside your comfort zone. I mean, that it's such an enabler because, you know, even Secretary Mattis himself would say this continually, that the worst way to learn is through experience. Uh, the best way to learn is by either learning from others, by reading books, by expanding your knowledge base. Let other people make the mistakes, but you can gain from their success and, and, what, and it'll help you save time in the future. It's a fantastic read. And without giving too much of, of the story away or the storylines, just maybe more of a teaser for the, the listeners out there. You know, there's another chapter titled, Never Wait to Make a Difference. Love that one. Uh, and, and I guess this might be the, a typical name for an aviator. Always have a wingman. Uh, you know, I remember yeah. as a kid always saying, never leave your wingman. So something similar, um, more maybe, maybe the college days. But uh, terrific book, a great read. I know we're coming up on the end of uh, summer beach reading season, but it's a great uh, a great book in terms of, to your point, life lessons. You know, you're just translating them into any type of a role whatsoever. And, and so appreciate you sharing your experiences experiences in that book. So uh, terrific read again. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. 
you know, and so now you've got book number two under your, under your belt. Any more books on the horizon? Yeah, actually, uh, <laughs> I probably have several more in me. I mean, I've got a couple more uh, nonfiction, but at some point I'd, I'd love to write a fiction book. When I was growing up as a kid, uh, books by Isaac Asimov for science fiction, books by Tom Clancy because of the military thriller kind of uh, genre. And I loved also Stephen King from the mystery uh, side of the house, right? So there were, there were these authors who wrote some really, really great books that inspired me as, as a young adult. And so I think at some point it'd be fun to write like just a purely fiction book that folds a lot of these types of themes on leadership and other things into it. But, you know, you find that a lot of people really resonate when you tell stories vice just lecturing or telling someone what they should do. So yes, absolutely. Some more on the horizon with some other books. And one of the things that I really am passionate about is kind of the intersection of national security and, and technology. Um, you know, we, we discussed at the beginning of your program that I've got some, some degrees in technology fields. And uh, I think that that's, you know, we're just watching this rapid acceleration with artificial intelligence and other cutting edge technologies. I know that there's, there's a lot of potential there for American industry, American companies. That, in fact, that's what I do with my consulting company is a lot of artificial intelligence work. So um, I'm looking for an opportunity and I found it where I'm going to be able to tell some stories about how the U.S. government used artificial intelligence. You know, how did they start down that pathway? What's the history of it? And what can it do for us in the future? You know, I know we're coming up on the end of our show here, and you and I touched briefly on it before the show and during the show. What are some of the leadership skills, lessons, anything along those lines that you could share with our beloved Dallas Cowboys as they come into uh, a strange <laughs> NFL season this year with Dak under, uh, you know, the franchise tag and new management at the top? So, what are some leadership skills you transfer over in the football field? Man, that is such a great question. Um, you know, I think we're already seeing it right now, regardless of the Cowboys, right? Uh, we talked about it early in the program, perseverance. I'd also say there's a chapter in the book that uh, was real important for me, and that, that chapter is called Anticipate Problems. You know, I share a story about how I was near, nearly killed in an air-to-air combat scenario when I was fighting overseas, and it was because of a lack of preparation. I, I hadn't thought far enough in ahead about some of the pitfalls that could have occurred and that nearly cost me my life. So obviously it's not as, uh, as dangerous as that, but with coronavirus, with all these changes, the ebbs and flows, when you think about sports teams, you know, it's all about anticipating problems. What could happen? How do you mitigate those problems before they even occur so that it looks seamless that, that men and women around the country can enjoy uh, sports? Cause that's part of the fall that everyone really uh, enjoys getting excited about. So let's make it great for the fans. We can do that by anticipating problems. And I think that that lesson, of course, also resonates with the greater public, meaning um, whether you're, you've got school-age kids, whether you're thinking about your job, there's just so much uncertainty right now that the best way to overcome it is to anticipate some of the likely issues that might arise and then putting checks and balances in place to mitigate them before they even occur. And that's how you can get to, to even greater success. Commander Guy Snodgrass, absolute pleasure and honor having you on the show today. I'm Chris Meek. This is Next Steps Forward. We'll see you here next time. Thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.